0: What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. Again, this week, always nice to have you along for a listen. I better shut off my phone. We don't want that interrupting us, do we? Anyway, there we go. Do not disturb us while we are starting our new series, From Patmos to Present, A Vision of Seven Churches from the Book of Revelation. First off, since I have the opportunity to say it, there is no S in Revelation. Kind of a mild pet peeve of mine, not that big of a deal, but slightly annoying all the same. I know from experience that when the Book of Revelation is brought up, it piques people's Interest. You talk about end times, end times prophecy. It's something that people definitely have a keen interest in. It also tends to evoke a lot of emotion in people. I mentioned a single single verse uh from the book of Revelation in a message once. I can't even remember what it was for. It was some kind of proof text, I suppose. But and someone who was listening sent me a message uh later in the day asking a question about my opinion on something, and they prefaced their message with, Well, I'm not looking for a debate. Um, I'm just curious. Well, this person, I gave my opinion on whatever it was they were talking about. And they took it upon themselves to write a letter to different members of the church where I pastor and discredit me in the hope of ultimately bringing about my demise. But uh, I'm still here and they're gone. So there you go. I have things to say about the Bible and Bible prophecy, just like many others, but it's usually not what people expect when I talk about it. Unlike A lot of Christians, I don't have a particularly strong interest in Bible prophecy. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, um, but in times for me, I suppose outside of knowing that Jesus is coming back, he'll rule in eternity, and I'm eternally secure in him, I'm more interested in learning and also teaching about what we can do today. That's kind of my thing. My philosophy is that if you are living the way Jesus wants you to live, you'll be in good shape when you see him in person whenever that may be, whether uh, we go to him first, he comes to us, whatever happens. And I know some people love Bible prophecy and it is interesting. I'm not saying it's not that, and some people love to dig into it, but it's also easy to become dogmatic about things that are enigmatic. And that may be a little bit of the reason why I'm kind of put off by it at times. There was a point, point. this was a long time ago, when I traveled to different churches and did fill-ins for pastors while they were away. There's actually a story about that uh, in my blog coming out in a couple of days. Uh, You can find it at uh, hinderlandbaptistchurch.com. And then sign up for my blog on there somewhere. Anyway, uh, just a funny story about stuff that happened, but there was a time when I used to travel a lot and visit different churches. I've had the opportunity to visit many, many churches. Um, I feel sorry for those who had to suffer through that, but most of the time people were pretty gracious. I grew up in uh, Idaho, which you know, I mentioned Idaho, even living in Australia, I mentioned Idaho and people think of potatoes. And I had a couple of uh, friends in seminary and the three of us used to, we, we went out and visited different churches a lot. We always took the opportunity when we were given it to go and speak in church. And uh, these, there was a particular church who uh, were, they were in between pastors and they would have students from the school come and fill in each Sunday. And my two friends, they went out and filled in the, the two weeks prior to myself going. And one of the things these uh, nice guys did was every week they went, one guy went one week, the other guy went the next week. And they told him each week and they were out there, man, this guy's from Idaho. He really loves potatoes. So you can, Guess uh, They gave us lunch after church. You can imagine what that lunch was like. Um, it was almost all potatoes, but anyway, I, I actually do like potatoes, so it wasn't a, uh, a bad thing. It just kind of comical, and I remember one church I visited in particular, and this was very early um, in my preaching career, whatever you want to call it. It was a tiny country church. They had a, a very small sanctuary in the church. It was It was about the size of a a large living room. And I'd finished the sermon and prayed and was dismissing the service when one person in the congregation stood up and interrupted and asked me a question about my opinion about something from the book of Revelation, which is really interesting. I've actually had that happen three different times. Twice was about prophecy and once was about marriage and divorce. And when people do that, um, I've learned over time that they don't really care about your answer. They care about whether or not you agree with them and they are likely trying to prove a point to someone else in that church. But every time it was inappropriate and completely off topic. In my experience, I didn't really know what to do except stand there like a deer caught in the headlights and try to answer their questions. I'd handle it differently today, but you know, when you're new to things, you don't really know uh, the best way to manage them. And I remember one of those times someone asked me something about the timing of the return of Jesus. And I said, well, Jesus is coming back and he wants us to live like he's coming back tomorrow. And that still defines my mindset pretty well. Of course, I have opinions on a lot of things in scripture, enigmatic things, things that are hard to interpret and understand, but if they are not clearly stated, I don't draw hard lines. And I think uh, Christians could get along a lot better if they did the same thing, but Jesus didn't tell us exactly when he was returning because he didn't want us procrastinating until the day before he does, which is exactly what most of us would probably do. Biblical prophecy is similar to a puzzle that hasn't been put together yet. This is, I suppose, my philosophy view of it. We can see um, all the pieces and we know that when they are put together, they will form a coherent and clear picture. But in the case of Bible prophecy and seeing it as a metaphorical puzzle, we don't have a box to look at. We don't know the picture that this puzzle is going to form. We can see the pieces um, and we, you know, are kind of one of those pieces in some ways. We may be able to look at the pieces and say, hey, these look like they go together, maybe forming an idea of the bigger picture, but we won't fully comprehend it until it's been completed. But the thing about this puzzle of biblical prophecy, is that we aren't the ones who designed it. We aren't the ones putting it together. We don't know what the picture is. We're more of the pieces in the puzzle. We can't speed it up. We can't slow it down. The only thing that will put the puzzle together is the Lord and time. And we can't rush or change that. God already knows what it looks like. And he's put things in motion that will eventually lead to it being completed, put together. He knows how it's going to come together and how long it will take and what it's going to look like. Once it's finished, then we will also see the bigger picture clearly. But until then, things are outside of our control. And it seems that sometimes Christians have a almost dogmatic obsession with end times so that they might change the events or somehow avoid them. And, I, you know, I kind of empathize in some ways. It can be a bit scary when you start looking at end times prophecy, but we all know how it ends. Uh, Jesus Jesus wins, and if you are belong to him, then you're going to be just fine. So yeah, some people get a little bit dogmatic about things that are enigmatic, and let's don't go down that road. Some of the things people draw a line in the sand over are, yeah, they're hard to understand. They're not easily interpreted, but there are some things about it that are clear, that we can know, and we got a bunch of kookaburros going off outside. I don't know if the microphone will pick that up or not, but it'd be kind of cool if it did. Definitely, definitely Australian icons out there going off the sun setting. Um, anyway, distractions. Uh, there are some things in Bible prophecy that are clear that we can know. Some of those things uh, Jesus wants to be wants us to be doing while all the pieces of this puzzle are being assembled. Now imagine this. Think of yourself in this position. When we finally see Jesus face to face, how would you like that to go? Uh, how would you know? I like it to go. I would like to hear Jesus say, "Well done." You know, you're far from perfect. You made some poor decisions along the way and several mistakes, but you looked at what I wanted from you, and for you, and you did your best to apply that. I think that would be great. So, with that in mind, we're going to come at this. Not from the angle of what is the puzzle going to look like when it's all put together, because we can't know that anyway. But what can and should we do while it's being put together? And we're going to do uh, we're going to do that by looking at the seven churches of Asia. And what we have in these seven churches is a real gift, in that Jesus has given us a very succinct vision of what He wants us to do and be. So as we look at these seven churches, let's consider, um, you know, my church, your church, uh, together as individuals, what Jesus wants us to do and be. Um, we're going to obviously be looking at the Book of Revelation to do that, and you know, we'll we'll talk more about the book itself and the history and context of this letter as we go through this series. And the first chapter of the book of Revelation explains what's happening. John is living in exile on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a Roman uh, penal colony and John's crime was practicing Christianity. And he's there due to uh, Christian persecution and the Roman empire under the emperor Domitian. And while he is on the island of Patmos, he is given a vision, a revelation. And that's what the book of Revelation is. Um, He's instructed to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia. Each one of these churches is described as a candlestick. And in this letter, uh, we read exactly what Jesus has to say, both as an encouragement and warnings to the seven churches of Asia. Asia. And we'll just go ahead and read uh, the message to the church of Ephesus, which is the one we're talking about today. And this is what it says. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold candlesticks, says these things, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles, but are not and have found them to be liars. You have endured and have been patient, and for my name's sake have labored and have not grown weary. But I have something against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, do the work you did at first, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. But this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear that the, what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give permission to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there we go. What Jesus has to say about the church at Ephesus. Now consider this. It's kind of like Jesus is going to give us a test or an evaluation of the things we did or did not do as a church, as individuals, kind of like he's doing for the churches here in Asia in the book of Revelation. But Jesus, it's not like he wants to catch us out. It's not like he wants to trick us. It's nothing like that. He actually wants us to do very well on this. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to pass the test. And he really wants us to do well And when we read how Jesus addresses each of these seven churches, one of the things he's doing here is giving us the answer key for the test, so to speak. Um, Do this here and now, and when test time comes, you'll already know the answers because I gave them to you ahead of time. I gave you the answer key. So we have the answer key. We just need to apply the answers. Then when we meet Jesus face to face, he can say, hey, you guys listen to what I said. You applied what I said. Good job. So we're looking at these seven churches from the perspective of you know what can and should we be doing now as we look forward to the end of time, at least it's the end of time as we know it. We're going to take this vision of seven churches from Patmos, bring it into the present day and apply it. And we begin with the church of Ephesus. Um, we have actually been in the book of Ephesians for a while. If you've been following along or if you've been going through the podcast and you're just catching up to where we are now, we've been in the book of Ephesus for uh, quite a while. Um, And as a bit of review, Ephesus was a very prominent city. It was a center of commerce and culture in Asia. And as we look at these different churches, we see things that Jesus says about each one of them that are both positive and negative and some of the things that he says are good things uh, they're encouraging he encourages churches he also gives them some warnings some negative things he says about them so we can take the things that jesus says that are positive we can apply those to our lives and our church life and be doing well we can take the things that jesus gives as warnings and avoid those you know it's it's, uh, the application may be challenging, but the premise itself is quite simple. Do this, don't do that. And one of the first things to note as we look at this passage of scripture involving the church at Ephesus is what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works. That's an important phrase, and it's good to take notice of that because as we read through these seven churches... Jesus addresses each one of these seven churches with that phrase, I know your works. Jesus knows. He's aware of what they're doing, both positive, negative in each of these churches. Jesus knows what's going on. He always has, always does, and always will. And we can make that same application in our own lives. You can make that same application at your home church. Jesus can say the same thing. I know your works whether it's you as an individual, the church you are part of, he knows what we're doing and what we're not doing. He knows our good works. Uh, He knows the ones that are not so good, just like all the churches we read about in the book of Revelation. And that should give us pause. Jesus is paying attention to what we're doing. And you know that's, that's a good thing. He's paying attention to what we're doing. He knows what we're going through. And he also knows the negative things that we're up to as well. And from this passage, We can get a a, a picture of what the culture of each of these churches was like. And the church of Ephesus has some very positive things. There's some things Jesus likes and he mentions those first. Jesus likes their labor. He likes the fact that they work hard, Uh, they're focused. He likes that about them. He says their patience is a positive thing. And the patience he's talking about there is the kind of patience it takes to bear up under a load. It's like patience that would lead to endurance. And Jesus likes that. He says it's a good thing. And, you know, personally, I like these same things Jesus likes. I like endurance, I like hard work. I'm right on board with those things. Jesus also says you cannot bear those who are evil. They work to keep the evil outside the church from getting inside the church. And they probably did that by encouraging and rebuking one another when someone had sinned. They may have done that through church discipline when someone in the church was living in unrepentant sin. Uh, Protecting moral purity in a church is, is a good thing. It's obviously a good thing and they worked hard at it and they did a good job. And so Jesus says labor, patience, moral purity in church are all good things. And those are good things happening in the church at Ephesus. So we keep those on our list of things to do and maintain. Those are positives that we can apply. Jesus also says they rejected false apostles. Again, I'm down with this. Sign me up. I like this church. And churches should be doing the same thing today. Um, and there's false apostles. Maybe uh, deviate here just for a moment. How do we know today if someone is a false apostle? Um, you may have heard someone claim they're an apostle. That an apostle there's been... Um, Some religious movements, I don't know how they are, like the new apostolic reformation or something like that. I don't really pay that much attention to them, Um, but they label themselves as apostolic. So how do you know what's legit? It's actually really, really easy to pick out a false apostle, piece of cake. If they say they are an apostle, they are a false apostle. There's no such thing today. There are no apostles today. If someone says they are an apostle, they're not. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but there are several things that were required in scripture to be an apostle that show us that they obviously aren't around today. Because one of them was that an apostle, someone who had to have seen Jesus after his resurrection in person. Uh, They'd been taught by Jesus personally. And there's no one like that today. No one alive today has had that experience. Another thing to understand about genuine apostles, and this is why this matters, um, it might go, you know, oh, well, you know, what's the big deal? Well, this is why it's important to reject false apostles is because uh, a true apostle had a tremendous amount of authority. They're not someone to be taken lightly. Apostles wrote the New Testament. Um, they, man, they had pretty much everything rolled up into one. They had the spiritual gifts, even the charismatic gifts. They, uh, when, when an apostle spoke or taught, it was like Jesus speaking or teaching. If they wrote something down, it was like scripture. When they taught something and gave instruction, um, what that apostle said was binding for all Christians everywhere. Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 tells us that, you know, church is built on the foundation of the apostles, meaning they're uh, teaching our belief system. They're built on what the apostles taught that we read in the New Testament. (sighs) So one of that thing one one of the things that means is that if a genuine apostle existed today, which they do not, but if they did, that apostle would have the authority to speak and write things that would be binding for all Christians everywhere. And what they said, if there was someone like that, would be like the Bible, and we don't need that because we already have the Bible written by genuine apostles inspired by God. So, anyway, back on track, um, come back up out of the rabbit hole there. Um, jumped down to verse six, it says, um, this is kind of along the same lines of what we've been talking about, but it says, but this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus says, you hate the work of Nicolaitans. I also hate the work they do, um, which is a positive. Uh, the Nicolaitans will come up again later. Like many other things in the book of Revelation, the Nicolaitans are, again, somewhat enigmatic and much speculation has been made about them, who they were, what they taught, what they did. But I think what we can know about them for certain is whatever they did, taught, was contradictory to what the apostles taught. And one idea of what they taught that I think might fit well with this particular church was that the Nicolaitans... um, In their teaching, abuse the doctrine of, of grace, and they tried to replace it or introduce licentiousness in its place. Something along the lines of, you know, God forgives us for all sins, and now we are free to just do whatever we want, and it doesn't really matter if we sin. Now, obviously, that's not true. We may be forgiven, but there are still consequences for sin. There's still, you know, we want to. Jesus said, you know, if you love me, follow my commandments, which we do. So sin does matter than what they were teaching, if that was the case. That's speculation. But if that's what the Nicolaitans were teaching, it's obviously not true. So the church at Ephesus patiently works and endures. They reject false prophets. They keep the church morally pure. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans, and they don't abuse the grace of God. And I like all that stuff, you know, I'm tracking well with what Jesus says or positives about this church. And if we were looking at this church, it would be a good looking church. You probably have one of these somewhere near you. Uh, It'd be a good looking church. If you were looking at it from the outside, looking in, it looks like church. But then we come to the part where Jesus says what he has against this church. And from what we've read about this church so far, I like this church, but, then, when Jesus says what he has against this church, I, I learned that not only do I like this church, but I'm also kind of like this church. Verses four through six say, But I have something against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place unless you repent. The church at Ephesus had many good things but they only had half of the equation. They had all the moral purity, they were working hard, but what they were missing was love, the kind of love that fueled their actions. A love for Jesus, a love for the lost, a love for each other, a love for life as a Christian. This is a church that had been motivated, had become motivated by a sense of duty rather than love for God and love for people, the the doctrine was probably good. All of those things, the moral purity was good, but they were motivated by a sense of duty instead of love for God and people. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. When you're a new believer, that's easy. It's natural, but in time, well, that, that can kind of fade. It's easy to become calloused and jaded. And that can be due to things in church. It can be due to things... Out the world. And to be fair, as we approach this, maybe I'm just being easy on myself, but we can see that Ephesians have had to deal with false apostles. They've had to deal with the Nicolaitans and their immorality. And I can empathize with this church. They had probably been dealing with people trying to tear their congregation apart, people trying to lead the sheep astray, people trying to devour the sheep, wolves trying to get inside the church. And after enough battles, you can become battle-hardened. You can, you know, if people go through enough of that, they can become calloused, they can become jaded, and that can lead to a sense of duty without love, which is what's happening in the church of Ephesus. And that can manifest itself in several ways. It can look like a lot of different things. It can look like suspicion. It can look like a lack of trust. It can look like, a lack of care, being insular. You know, and personally, I can relate to all of that stuff at different times in my ministry, personally. You know, the church I pastor now, doing great, great church. But, you know, there's been times we've struggled in the past, especially me personally. But Jesus, because he's awesome, doesn't write this church off. He says the way to deal with all of that is to go back where you started. Repent, change your mind from where it is now and return to where you agree with God. Jesus is saying, you need to reset your love. You need to reset your trust. Now, how do we do that? Well, we go back to where you started and remember what the gospel meant to you when you first understood it. Remember what it was like to be motivated by love for God, love for your neighbor, not just a sense of duty. And maybe that's not you, maybe that's not a problem for you, but I'm, it is for some of us. And you know, to love people doesn't mean you have to you know, feel emotional about them. But it does mean deciding to love and trust people again over and over, Uh, to to reset those things, to reset your love and your trust when you meet new people, which is difficult when you're jaded, you're calloused, and you're thinking, now this person is just going to cause me more trouble, more grief, more problems. But what Jesus is telling us to do is to reset our love and trust every time we come into a new relationship, especially if we become kind of jaded and calloused And if we don't do that, Jesus says something's gonna happen. There's a warning of what will come to pass if we don't do that. Jesus says, I'll come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. I've heard, man, uh, the book of Revelation has got more weird stuff floating around about it than probably any other book in the Bible. And I've heard a lot of weird stuff applied to this passage and many of the other ones throughout the book. And I may not know exactly how to explain all of this stuff, but sometimes I hear things and think, well, I'm sure that's not it. Now, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, you're salt and light. You're the light of the world. You know, people don't uh, put a candlestick under a basket. They put it high on a stand um, so it can light the whole house. Let your light shine so that others will see it and give glory to God. Now, obviously I'm just paraphrasing that, but a candle provides light but it's a delicate flame. And you'll notice as Jesus speaks in this, he says, I come quickly. So there's a sense of urgency in what Jesus says. There's a job to be done. It's important. Jesus wants us to do well. He wants us to be part of it. He wants to use us to do what he wants us to do. But if we don't care, if we only do things out of a sense of duty, Jesus says, I'm going to remove your candlestick." I'm just going to do that. And I interpret what Jesus is saying there as Jesus saying, you're going to lose your opportunity to be a light in your community. You're going to lose your opportunity to represent Jesus in your community. You will lose your opportunity to share the love of God because you don't have it. It's not what's motivating you. And I think that applies well to how Jesus describes his church at Ephesus. It's a morally pure church. They're avoiding false teaching, patiently enduring. All of those things good but their motivation is just duty. It's not love. And have you ever been in one of those churches? Maybe you're part of a church like that now. I know I've been part of a church like that in the past. I've been to churches like that. But a church without love, it, it won't be light in its community. And it's, what's gonna happen is it's just gonna kind of fade into obscurity. You've probably seen churches like that. You, know, you drive by church buildings and things, and you might even wonder if there's even a church that meets there. And when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to remove your candlestick, I don't think it means that those people are going to stop being loved by Jesus. I don't think that, you know, he's they're not going to be his people anymore, so to speak. I don't think it means that they're not saved people. Um, I don't think it may even means that that church will cease to exist in whatever location they're in. It'll But it'll just be there it'll be there but the light won't and you know a church may limp along for years and it may eventually close it may not and may it may recover it may repent and turn back i don't i don't know i don't know how to say it other than everything in a church like that is done out of a sense of duty and jesus just really isn't part of it and you know i don't want that in my church you probably don't want that in your church either you don't want that in your own life but wonderfully enough we serve a god of second chances and If and when we do happen to get off in the weeds, which we all occasionally do, Jesus says, get back on the road and get back to it. You know, stand up, dust yourself off, and get back to what you're supposed to be doing. Love God, love your neighbor, reach out to your community. And I hope, I hope that the things we talk about today, the things we've talked, we will be talking about through the series are helpful to you. I hope they give you some good things to meditate on. And if you found this helpful, please share it with a friend. I'll be praying for you guys. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful.